Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the 18th of December 1939 and RAF Bomber Command is about to show that it's learned nothing from the disaster that befell 99 Squadron four days earlier. That misbegotten mission saw a dozen Wellington bombers attacked by Luftwaffe, Messerschmitt 109 and 110 fighters off the north coast of Germany. The English aircraft were easy targets because they were flying in strict formation in daylight and even more vulnerable for not having self-sealing fuel tanks. Six Wellingtons were destroyed and 33 of Jim Bruff's fellow airmen died. Unwilling to believe that these bombers were shot down by German fighter planes, Bomber Command has put the losses down to anti-aircraft fire and still unshakable in their belief that the bomber will always get through, orders have now been given for an even larger raid on German warships in the Heligoland Bight. At about 9.30am, with the weather clear for once, Wellington bombers from the 9, 39 and 149 squadrons start taking off from their bases. 22 reached their target area off Wilhelmshaven at about 1.10pm, but only a few managed to drop their bombs and no German ships are hit. That's because the Wellingtons are swarmed by nearly four dozen Messerschmitt fighters. 12 English bombers are shot out of the sky. 57 RAF airmen die, with three more bailing out to become prisoners of war. In answer, just two German fighters are destroyed and two pilots killed. Even Bomber Command's upper echelon can't ignore this massive failure, and from now on, major raids will be conducted at night. 
Bomber Command will also ensure that Wellington fuel tanks are self-sealing so that bullet or anti-aircraft hits don't inevitably cause planes to burst into flame or run out of fuel on the flight home. Even so, as Jim Bruff will soon find out, flying in safer Wellingtons at night during the darkest winter months comes with other terrors. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, The First to Fight. In the week after their disastrous mission, 99 Squadron was brought back to strength by the arrival of new Wellington bombers and the transfer of new pilots. With his former Point Cook classmates spread out across the RAF, Jim's best friends in the squadron were now fellow pilots Philip Dyer and A.F. Smith. Like him, they'd both been leading three plane sections on the 14th of December and lived to tell the tale. Battlefield bonding doesn't come much deeper than surviving a mission on which half your mates die. After celebrating Christmas, Jim and the men of the 99 Squadron flew regular reconnaissance and leaflet missions, though even more frequently, air crews stood by for hours only to be stood down because of foul weather, which now included snow. In mid-January, the 99 Squadron was on one hour's notice after German ground forces were reported massing on the borders of Holland and Belgium. If Hitler's army invaded, then they and other RAF squadrons would be sent in to bomb the Germans. But the Nazis didn't attack, at least not then. In February 1940, when their wing commander was off sick, Jim was on duty almost non-stop for three weeks leading 99 Squadron. Most of that time, he and his comrades lived that old military maxim, hurry up and wait. On Sunday, the 18th of February, air crews stood by for 17 hours and nothing happened. The following day, Jim and others stood ready for 13 hours before being stood down again. Then, at 9 o'clock on the night of the 20th of February, Jim and four other pilots, including his friend Philip Dyer, having stood by with their air crews since 8 that morning, got their orders. They were to carry out reconnaissance over Heligoland, the German island archipelago fortress. Jim's Wellington took off at 9.50pm from the Newmarket Racecourse, which was still being used as an airfield by 99 Squadron. The weather was terrible, fog all over the place, and Jim didn't see a thing until he caught sight of a Dutch island off starboard through a break in the clouds. At 12.12am, his plane was over Heligoland, which, Jim saw, was surrounded by sea ice. There were enemy ships down there somewhere, but in such conditions, he and his crew couldn't see them. At least flying at night in such poor weather also made it nearly impossible for the Luftwaffe's Messerschmitts to intercept the Wellingtons. Jim circled Heligoland twice, and then he and the other pilots turned back for England. Flying in over Suffolk, Jim found both airfields at Milden Hall and Newmarket completely shrouded in thick fog. 
fuel dwindling, he circled for 45 minutes before finally he caught sight of the flare path that demarcated Newmarket's landing strip. But when he got down to just 100 feet off the ground, the flares were gone. Whether invisible in the fog or having burned down, he didn't know. Jim radioed for assistance twice, but due to a stuff up by the ground crew, no help was forthcoming. Now, Jim's Wellington was running on fumes. Jim Bruff didn't leave any diaries, but he did write letters to his parents, and in one, he described what happened next. Quote, I was very low in petrol now, and so decided to force land. In other words, crash in the fog. I told my crew to lie down and then made two attempts. The third time I was lucky because at about two feet I saw snow swishing along under me. It was a good ploughed field, just what I wanted, so I throttled back and waited for the jolt. What Jim couldn't know was that this snowy field adjoined an orchard. Quote, Suddenly, there was a terrific crash, and I found myself lying on my back out of the seat bent double. There was a wolf, and the wreckage began to blaze. After about 30 seconds, it went out, but it was the longest half minute I've ever experienced. I think especially as I was stuck. I managed to climb out, however, and I found I was okay, except for a cut on my head and my hands all cut and a terrific bruise on my right leg. I called out the names of my crew and everyone was okay except a naval lieutenant commander named Fillimore who was nearly unconscious with his legs all twisted up and caught. Jim's Wellington had come down near the village of Walsoken, a marshy wetlands area south of the Wash and smashed through orchard trees before coming to rest in one of the area's many drains. It took Jim and the other crew one and a half hours to get Naval Lieutenant Commander Fillimore, who'd been aboard as an observer, free of the plane that Jim wrote was, quote, smashed up into matchwood. The story goes that after this crash, bomber crews going on missions would touch Jim in the hope that his luck would rub off on them. Looking at photos of his destroyed Wellington, it's actually easy to believe that story. The cockpit, gunner's turrets, wings, everything. They're ripped apart, twisted and torn beyond recognition. It's a miracle that anyone survived, let alone everyone on board. After such a close call, Jim resolved that if he faced a similar situation again, he'd order his men to bail out rather than try to defy the odds a second time. But a parachute escape wasn't any guarantee of survival. Almost a year to the day later, another Wellington pilot from the 99 Squadron faced the same fuel emergency in the same foggy weather over the same part of England. This aircrew did bail out, only for one man to be later found drowned in one of the area's deep drains. But on that morning, the 21st of February 1940, Jim Bruff had cheated death again, and he was exhausted. 
Back at Newmarket Base, he learned that his mate Phil Dyer and the other three pilots had managed to land their Wellington safely at other RAF airfields. By the time Jim got to bed, cut up and bruised, he'd been awake for 31 hours on the back of three weeks' constant duty. After sleeping for 16 hours, he was thrilled to find that his wing commander had recommended him for the Distinguished Flying Cross. Jim was also happy to take six days' well-deserved leave. He hit London, visiting with friends who introduced him to a very famous barrister. This gent took Jim to lunch at the Inner Temple Hall, originally established by the Knights Templar. And Jim was intrigued to get a glimpse of this elite legal enclave. He wrote to his parents, quote, They eat with their hats on and sit on long benches just like schoolboys. This is a very exclusive place as no ordinary lawyer can go there. Jim got to see where Knights Templar were buried and the following day had lunch at Simpsons, another posh spot where, quote, they wheel great steaming joints of roast beef around on trolleys to your table and carve it in front of one. That night, Jim took a French baroness's daughter out to a London casino where they saw two shows and danced to Jack Harris and his band. Jim also got his fortune told and his letter concluded with this soothsayer's prediction, quote, she says I will be a big shot with lots of dough and would marry quickly to a widow with lots of money. I am also going to have something conferred on me. But maybe there was nothing in this prediction because despite his wing commander's recommendation, Jim wasn't awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Jim Bruff was back in the air on the night of the 15th of March, his Wellington accompanied by another flown by his mate Smith. After taking off at 6.10pm, they ascended to 10,000 feet and went over Hamburg, glided down to as low as 200 feet, dropping propaganda leaflets over the city before climbing again. Their next job that night was reconnaissance of the River Elbe, with Jim and Smith having to take evasive action to avoid anti-aircraft fire and to escape searchlights that picked up their Wellingtons. As they closed in on the River Elbe, heavy rain and ice-laden cloud made recon impossible, and they turned their planes back for England, arriving safely. The very next day, the 16th of March, 1940, the European war changed. German bombers attacked the British home fleet at its base at Scarpa Flow, killing four. But one enemy aircraft dropped its bombs on a nearby village. Seven people were wounded and a man named James Asbeister was killed, the first British civilian to die in a World War II air raid. Now, the gloves were off and Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain ordered Bomber Command to get vengeance on German soil. On the night of the 19th of March, 50 bombers, Whitleys and Hamptons from 4, 5 and 10 squadrons launched what was then the biggest raid of the war on the Hornham airbase on the island of Silt near the German-Danish coast. Visibility was good, with 41 crews claiming to have hit their targets and only one bomber lost to anti-aircraft fire. 
British newspaper billboards proclaimed, RAF takes revenge and Scarpa avenged. Anzacs were proud of the role they'd played in the raid, with 30% of the air crews comprising Australians and New Zealanders. The most prominent in Australian newspaper reports was Jim's old Point Cook mate, Bob Cosgrove, whose father was now Tasmania's Premier. In a widely published article, Cosgrove described the raid vividly. Quote, Shell and yellow tracer bullets were shooting up everywhere, but we got our mark. I heard the crew shout, we've hit them. I was too busy to look back, but when I turned the machine and went back over the objective, I saw hangars in flames. In that same article, one of Bob's mates, Australian pilot John Bull of Adelaide, said his and Cosgrove's flying careers had been interrupted by the war, but once they'd won, they were going to have a lot of fun. He said, quote, Pilot Officer Taylor of Melbourne, Cosgrove and I are going to take a catch around the world and get some sun. It was a nice dream, but it wouldn't happen. On the 9th of April 1940, the so-called phony war ended when Germany invaded Norway. One of the Nazis' major operations was taking the city of Stavanger, along with its aerodrome, which would be used by the Luftwaffe. This now became one of Bomber Command's priority targets. On the 12th of April 1940, in a raid, Bob Cosgrove's mate, John Bull, took a bad hit in his Handley Page Hampton bomber and had to ditch in the North Sea on the way back to England. John Bull, who'd wanted to sail around the world in a catch after the war, was last seen getting into a rubber dinghy with his aircrew. Two days later, Bob Cosgrove didn't return from a mission. Jim wrote to his parents, quote, Dear folks, well, I have a little more news for you this week, so here goes. Bob Cosgrove is reported as missing. He had a go at Stavanger and is just missing. Side note, pilot officer George Richard Taylor, son of the editor of Melbourne's Sun Pictorial newspaper, who'd planned to sail that catch with Bob Cosgrove and John Bull, lived to be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and be promoted to squadron leader before he was killed in action in August 1941. On the 17th of April 1940, it was 99 Squadron's turn to bomb Stavanger, their orders also instructing them to shoot up searchlights and any buildings or enemy aircraft they saw on the ground. At 7.32pm, six Wellingtons took off from Newmarket, Jim leading the squadron, which included bombers piloted by his mates Smith and Dyer. Jim wrote to his parents, quote, It was quite a nice night, full moon with little cloud, until we got about latitude 55 degrees north, where we ran into some ice-laden cloud. I arrived at the target expecting to see fires and bombs and bullets, etc., but everything was quiet and the moon shining. I circled at 7,500 feet to get my bearings, then descended to 3,000 feet, but couldn't find the damn thing. Around I went again, everything and everyone excited, the gunners ready to shoot at searchlights and AA guns. Jim did two dummy runs over Stavanger and then came in for the real thing. Quote, 
Over I went at 1,000 feet, and just as the bombs went, four lights got me and pom-poms opened up. Jim dropped three 500-pound bombs, and all of them scored direct hits on the airfield as his gunners fired down searchlight beams and destroyed four of them. He wrote, It was all over in a second or two. I felt my aeroplane leap as the bombs burst. Everything was a blaze of lights and the sky thick with green and red, together with the bullets from my own guns. I dived to sea level and got away okay. I had dropped a flare at the same time as the bombs and luckily Philip Dyer saw it and saw me getting shot up so he was able to go in after me and bomb. But anti-aircraft fire zeroed in on Dyer's Wellington and a shell ripped through his port wing. Jim touched down back at Newmarket at 2.16am and drank beer and waited for the others to return. He was relieved that his mate Dyer landed safely at 3.42am. His Wellington's self-sealing fuel tanks had meant that the hit on the plane hadn't led to a fire or catastrophic fuel loss. By 4am, five of the six Wellingtons had returned safely. Of these, one had located the target but been unable to bomb it due to cloud cover. The other two hadn't been able to find Stavanger. Jim and Dyer waited for their friend Smith. Maybe he'd been luckier. He hadn't. Jim wrote, quote, Much to my horror, poor old Smithy didn't come back. He has been my best pal since war, and he and Dyer and myself have been through it all. However, it is war, and that's that. It is war, and that's that. In May 1940, that war took on the dimensions that we are most familiar with. The German invasion of France, the evacuation of Dunkirk, the fall of Paris and the start of the Battle of Britain. By then Jim had been transferred out of the 99 Squadron and was training bomber pilots at RAF Bassingbourne. With Gordon Olive now flying Spitfires against the Germans in the Battle of Britain and tasked as tactics advisor for his squadron, he sought out his old Point Cook mate Jim Bruff and other veteran bomber pilots. Olive later wrote, quote, The advice that these boys were able to give us on tactics from the bomber's point of view was most useful. We spent many days at this work before we developed a technique which seemed both satisfactory to ourselves and was agreed upon as sound by the Bomber Boys. Side note, Gordon Olive would fly 193 sorties and survive the war to become known as Australia's Spitfire Ace, which is the title of his autobiography. In mid-July 1940, Jim Bruff got the good news. He was to be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, not for any single action, but for his bravery and calm in the many missions he'd flown since the war began. That was, if he lived to receive the honour, for many DFCs were being awarded posthumously. And though he was now training at Bassingbourne, being there in this new phase of the war was to live in the crosshairs. This was really brought home in August when a German bomb hit a barracks block near the base's parade ground. 11 men were killed 
and another 15 wounded. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On the 3rd of September, 1940, the first anniversary of the war, Jim Bruff from Hobart went to Buckingham Palace where King George VI presented him with the Distinguished Flying Cross. This honour was widely reported in the Australian press. A congratulatory message to Jim's parents from Tasmania's Chief Secretary ended with, quote, I would like to take this opportunity of congratulating you and Mrs. Bruff on the splendid gallantry of your son and of expressing the sincere hope that he will be spared to continue his good work towards the ultimate victory for England and the Empire. Realistically, the odds were against Jim being spared, and the odds were increasingly against England and the Empire. That was because, since the start of the war, the RAF had struggled to replace the hundreds of planes it had lost. England had ordered 26,000 aircraft from the United States, where fighters and bombers were being produced in record numbers. But the problem was getting them across the Atlantic, because ships carrying these precious aircraft too often fell prey to German U-boat attacks. So a daring plan was conceived. RAF pilots would sail across the Atlantic and fly these new planes back to England. In our era of commercial jet travel, such flights are routine, but until this time, only 100 aircraft had attempted to cross the Atlantic, and doing so in good weather, only half had made it. In November 1940, seven pilots flew the first of these planes and made it to England safely. In the next few months, more flights followed, carrying personnel and supplies, though not all planes survived the voyage, including one carrying Sir Frederick Banting, who'd won the Nobel Prize for his role in the discovery of insulin. Even so, enough missions were successful for now Prime Minister Winston Churchill to order the plan to be carried out on a large scale. And Jim Bruff would be among the early RAF Ferry Command pilots. On the 14th of March 1941, Jim sailed from Newport in Wales on the steamer Bodegraven bound for New York City. The passenger manifest listed Jim and other RAF officers as diplomats. Sailing across the Atlantic, the convoy was twice bombed by German planes, but 21 days after setting out, Jim's ship arrived safely in New York City. From there, he went to Canada, took the controls of a Liberator four-engine bomber, and with a co-pilot navigator, he took off for England. Over the Atlantic, from his cockpit, 
Jim saw the Aurora Borealis. Based on what he told them in an interview, Hobart's Mercury newspaper described what Jim saw. Quote, The brilliant phenomenon of the Northern Hemisphere blazed into his vision as he swept above the desolate Atlantic. Shafts of red and golden light pierced the heavens and painted a picture of untold beauty. Beautiful, but less so when the Liberator's heating equipment failed and the plane filled with smoke. After dealing with that crisis, Jim and his co-pilot flew in freezing conditions. But when they touched down in England, it was to find that their flying time, 7 hours and 20 minutes, was a new record for an Atlantic crossing. Jim held the record for 12 hours, a mate beating it by 5 minutes the next day in a flying fortress. On the 31st of May, Jim was back on another ship, the Tyndarius, bound for New York again, and weeks later he'd fly a Hudson bomber back over the Atlantic. On the 2nd of August 1941, the Sphere magazine published an article about these missions, its main photo showing Jim Bruff looking back from his pilot seat in the cockpit. The article went on to say, quote, Were the need for secrecy less great, wonderful stories could be told by the pilots whose now everyday flights would each have made the headlines in the days before the war. Amongst the aircraft being ferried over are the huge four-engine Liberators. At least 120 of these are on order. Though barely known today, Ferry Command's mission was vital in ensuring that England had the bombers it needed to continue the war. Some 9,000 planes were delivered in this fashion, but some 500 pilots died attempting the Atlantic crossing. Back at RAF bases through 1941, Jim was assigned to test the airworthiness of planes, flying some 33 different aircraft, from Spitfire fighters to Lancaster bombers. Towards the end of that year, or early in January 1942, Jim saw a face that he hadn't seen in years. Jack Woolnuff, who'd been one of his classmates what seemed a lifetime ago at technical school in Hobart. The men caught up on old times, but Jim didn't see Jack again. On the night of the 16th of January, Jack piloted a Wellington on a training flight and, following a technical failure, crashed into a wood near King's Bromley. All seven crew were killed, all of them young Australians. In 1942, Jim was back in combat with the 35 Squadron. Jim now flew with a silk map of occupied France's escape routes should he be shot down and be able to bail out. Escape was the plan, but becoming a prisoner of war was the more likely outcome, as another of Jim's Point Cook classmates, Guy Graysmith, had found out. After being shot down in May 1940, Graysmith spent four years as a POW at Starlag Luft 3 camp in Poland. Side note, as a POW suffering from tuberculosis, Guy Graysmith kept himself sane by teaching himself to sketch, and after the war, he'd become one of Australia's great modern artists. 
On the night of the 30th of May 1942, Jim Bruff took part in Operation Millennium, a bombing raid on a scale never before seen. Flying a Halifax bomber, he was one of 1,000 pilots sent against Cologne in Germany. These planes dropped 1,455 tonnes of bombs on the city, destroying chemical and machine tool industries. But 469 Germans were killed and 45,000 more left homeless. 43 RAF aircraft were lost, just over 4%. Winston Churchill telegraphed United States President Franklin Roosevelt the next day, saying, quote, I hope you were pleased with our mass air attack. There is plenty more to come. There was, and Jim Bruff flew in every 1,000 bomber mission after that in 1942, piloting short Stirling bombers and flying Halifaxes as squadron leader with the 78 Squadron. Based on that interview he did with Hobart's Mercury newspaper, its reporter described Jim's work this way, quote, Night raids are made without fighter escort. In any event, the range is too great for the fighters. The Germans, for their part, leave nothing to chance. The Ruhr, home of Germany's heavy industries, is amazingly fortified against raiders. Every city of importance lies behind a widely distributed system of anti-aircraft defences. Trouble begins 80 miles west of Essen. Searchlights, night fighters, or all of the terrifying components of the flak that beset the bomber are swung into action. The bomber captain must stay on his course, but he zooms from right to left, up and down, in and out of the searchlight beams, dodging the death that awaits him and his companions if he is not eternally alert. Blinded by the glare of a searchlight beam, he must feverishly escape it so that ak-ak fire will not destroy him and his ship. And he can't fly over the flak. It will reach him no matter how high he flies. But flak or no flak, he must reach the target. He flies in and drops his load on the area allotted him. Not one, not 100, but 1,000 like him hurtle death and destruction from the skies. The glow of huge fires spread out below him and smoke billows into the searchlight beams. His job is done. Out he goes again to begin the journey that will take him to home and safety. But they don't all get back. 5% are considered expendable and usually they are expended. Jim Bruff's life wasn't all about war. In mid-1942, he went to a social club dance where he met 23-year-old Amy Marsh. Like the fortune teller had said, she was a widow, though that wasn't unusual for a young woman at this time, and she didn't have a lot of money. Amy's husband, Kenneth, had been an RAF reserve pilot officer, and in July 1940, they'd had a baby son they called Kenneth Jr. In May 1941, Amy's husband had been killed during operations in Malta, and then, in March 1942, little Ken died after an illness. 
Jim and Amy married at St Michael's Church in South Shields on the 2nd of August 1942 with his officers at RAF Station Middleton St George presenting their squadron leader with an engraved sterling silver tray. Photos of the happy couple appeared in newspapers in Australia and soon that's where they'd be. On the 25th of January 1943, after six years in England, Jim relinquished his RAF commission and officially returned to the RAAF. With Amy set to join him in a couple of months, Jim started the long journey to Australia. He sailed in a convoy across the Atlantic to New York City and then took a lone steamer through the Panama Canal across the Pacific only to almost be wrecked in a ferocious storm off the west coast of Tasmania. On the 18th of May 1943, Hobart's Mercury newspaper devoted a full illustrated page to their hometown hero under the headline, One in a Thousand. Melbourne's The Age newspaper ran a smaller story that was grimly efficient in its description of Jim's time with the RAF. Quote, A list of German and slave cities bombed by Flight Lieutenant J.F.P. Bruff, D.F.C. of Hobart, reads like a page from Baddeker's Guide to Europe. Some of the cities he has helped to blast in Wellington, Stirling and Halifax bombers are the main ones in the Ruhr and Stettin, Hamburg, Bremen, Emden, Dresden and Essen. He has also bombed Paris and the U-boat base at Saint-Nazaire. While Jim and other Australians returning from the RAF got heroes' welcomes in the newspapers, the RAAF made a serious mistake by not recognising the acting flight lieutenant ranks they'd attained in England. Jim, who the Sunday Telegraph said, quote, has flown more types of operational aircraft than any other airman in Australia, was one of those demoted to flight officer. There were howls of outrage. Jim's dad, Fred, spoke to the newspaper, saying, quote, I appreciate the splendid fight the Sunday Telegraph is making on behalf of all those splendid lads who have suffered so grievously at the hands of Air Minister Drakeford since their return to their homeland. I know that the fear of victimisation is keeping some of the boys quiet. The RAAF scrambled to contain the damage, claiming a mistake, and quickly restored the men to their rightful ranks. Jim was posted to the RAAF's number 6 service flight training school in Malala, South Australia, where he was promoted to group commander and for the next year taught young pilots who'd soon be flying in combat operations in the Pacific and in Europe. Jim and Amy lived in a fine house near the water in Glenelg, and in September 1944, they had their first daughter, Valerie. That same month, Jim and numerous other Australian veterans of the RAF were released from the RAAF to join Australian National Airways. Jim Bruff had survived World War II but 3,486 Australians who'd served with the RAF in Bomber Command never came home. 
Jim and Amy's second daughter, Erica, was born in 1947, with the family then living in Melbourne. For the next decade, Jim's wife and young daughters wouldn't see a lot of him, as he was always off flying somewhere. During Jim's decade with Australian National Airways, he was quickly promoted to captain and flew and instructed on DC-3s. Moving on to DC-4s, he flew long-haul routes to Vancouver and then, with ANA partnered with Air Salon, flew the London route and was stationed for three months at a time in places like Cairo, Cyprus and Tel Aviv. After Air Salon stopped operating, Jim returned to Australia, flying and checking DC-4s. After ANA bought DC-6s, Jim ferried them to Australia and was in charge of the fleet's operations, selecting, training and testing pilots. In 1955, Jim, who by this time had logged 10,500 flying hours, that's more than an entire year in the sky, traded the cockpit for a desk job with Australia's Civil Aviation Authority, which meant moving his family to Sydney. While Jim now got to see his wife and daughters more often, for a man whose true love was flying, this career change was difficult. But it was important work, ensuring Australian aviation moved safely into the jet age. With happy landings then far from assured, which Jim saw firsthand in 1962 in New York City. At 10:07 a.m. on the 1st of March, a clear spring day, an American Airlines Boeing 707, designated Flight One, took off from New York's Idlewild Airport, destined for Los Angeles. Two minutes into the flight, the aircraft rolled and plummeted into Jamaica Bay in Queens, killing all 95 people aboard. As the New York Daily News reported at the time, quote, Whatever happened some 1,500 feet upstairs happened with such sickening speed that the pilot, Captain James Heist, 56, just last Tuesday, with 18,300 hours of flying time, never had a chance to radio his predicament. In sight of a following plane and dozens of witnesses, the jet arrowed straight down to extinction near the Jamaica Bay Bird Sanctuary. The article continued. Quote, Last night, after top federal investigators had flown here from Washington at the express order of President Kennedy, the cause of the crash, in perfect weather, ceiling unlimited, visibility 15 miles, was a complete mystery. Inspecting the crash site, which had strewn wreckage and bodies over a quarter-mile area of marshland, the chairman of the United States Civil Aeronautics Board told the press that the mystery might be solved in a month, a year, or never. This was the fifth fatal Boeing 707 accident since they had entered commercial service in October 1958. Less than a year later, and amid much fanfare, Qantas had added 707s to its fleet for long-haul flights. With Jim Bruff supervising the safe introduction of these jet planes, he needed to have eyes on his American counterpart's investigation into what had happened to Flight 1. So he went to New York. A federal public hearing into the cause of the crash was held from the 20th of March and, in the days that followed, it seemed to be going nowhere. As the Saturday Evening Post reported, 
quote, By March 26, they had turned up not a single clue. Now they gathered up the twisted hydraulic, electrical and autopilot components and flew them to American Airlines Maintenance Base at Tulsa. The schedule called for re-examination to see if anything had been overlooked. There, a man named Wesley Cowan, a senior Boeing engineer, inspected the rudder servo and saw that the protective sleeves on three wires had puncture marks. But the question was, what had caused these? The Saturday Evening Post report continued, quote, Now Jim Bruff, an Australian aviation expert assigned by his government to follow the search, spotted something else. There, on the servo motor housing opposite the puncture marks, were several deep scratches. For the first time since March the 1st, Cowan felt he was onto something. Deliberately, he asked to see eight other servo units on Americans' stock shelf. Six bore similar cuts and scratches. One still carried the manufacturer's seal. I was startled, he recalls. We'd been looking for something for so long and finding absolute zero. Then, all of a sudden, there it was. And it was. The Civil Aeronautics Board would go on to conclude that the most likely cause of the crash was a short circuit caused by these wires, which had been damaged during the manufacturing process, which caused, quote, rudder control system malfunction, producing yaw, side slip and roll, leading to a loss of control from which recovery was not effective. For the next two decades, Jim Bruff would play a vital role for Australia's Civil Aviation Authority in its relationship with Qantas, helping to ensure that the airline has never suffered a fatal air crash or hull loss in the jet age. To keep current, Jim also had to understand the newest planes from a pilot's perspective. So, in 1978, at the age of 61, he trained to fly Boeing 747s. This came to the notice of the Guinness Book of World Records, with a company representative writing to Jim, saying, This, I understand, would make you the oldest pilot in the Western world to convert to B-747s. The Guinness Book representative requested that Jim write back, confirming his age and that he'd finished the course so he could be included in the next edition of the book. Jim wasn't interested and didn't reply. In early 1981, after 45 years as a pilot and more than a quarter of a century with the Civil Aviation Authority, Jim Bruff retired. With his daughters grown up, he spent his retirement playing golf, scoring a hole-in-one five times. He also loved tinkering in his home workshop. What Jim didn't do was talk about the war. Nor did he go to Anzac Day marches. In 1989, RAF-99 Squadron had a reunion at Newmarket in England. Men who'd survived that deadly mission 50 years earlier and all the other raids that followed gathered to remember their fallen comrades, marvel that they'd lived into old age and chuckle about how they'd all gotten thinner on top and thicker around the middle. Jim didn't go to the reunion claiming he was done with long-distance air travel. His daughters, Valerie and Erica, didn't believe this, not of the father who'd flown so far 
and for so long. Rather, both Valerie and Erica believe that their dad spent decades suffering quietly from PTSD. It'd certainly make sense given that he'd spent four years flying incredibly dangerous missions during which he saw dozens of his friends die in burning aeroplanes. And physically, that leg injury that he sustained in the 1940 Wellington crash continued to plague him, gradually reducing his mobility. In the year 2000, Jim and Amy moved from Sydney's north to Queanbeyan, near Canberra. Amy died in 2006, and the following year, on the 9th of June 2007, at the age of 90, Jim Bruff went to his rest. While Jim never talked about the war, after he died, his daughters found among his possessions a copy of a poem written by a fellow RAF bomber pilot, Frederick Rainsford, that might give some insight into how Jim's experience had haunted him. The poem is titled War and Peace 1948, which appears to refer to the date it was written. It reads, I am young yet as a man's years go, but most unwise, for I was schooled in war. My mind a magpie's store, the soft deceptive glow of flak through cockpit glass, its sudden roar, mounting to a burst, a cloud of tiny stars, a joking voice, why Beetlejuice, not Mars? I, young enough in years as these things are, but old with weariness and the unsleeping thought of men long dead who joked a while at war, who drank and played and laughed and fought, and put their young men's trust in me to guard in dying their integrity. We broke that trust How well I see it now. The world moves on, uncaring and unwise, heading through war to its chaotic end. And still I bow, helpless and frightened in the gathering storm, its size and depth and awfulness drowning the sound of dead men's cries mocking the wind. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This episode was made possible with the kind assistance of Jim and Amy Bruff's daughters, Valerie and Erica. When Jim and Amy moved to Queanbeyan in the year 2000, he, for reasons unknown, gave his World War II pilot's logbook to one of the removalists. Valerie and Erica would very much like for it to be returned or to be able to copy it for their family history. If you have any information about the logbook, please make contact with me via the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. Forgotten Australia will return with a new episode in two weeks. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the show, please tell a friend or two and leave a review and rating at iTunes because that really helps other people find the podcast. To learn more about this and other stories, visit ForgottenAustralia.com. 
Forgotten Australia was written, presented and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.